If you would join me in taking your Bibles and let's turn over to the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 5. Chapter 5, we'll begin reading at verse 22 through the end of verse 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. Before we pray, just a couple of things. I learned just at the beginning of this service that uh, Shelly Ray, Gary's wife Shelly, uh, found out that she has cancer this past week. And so... They're, they're hearing that news for the first time. And Gary has been dealing with cancer himself, and so we want to we wanna remember her today and throughout the coming days. Also, I want you to see a picture of a country, Somalia. It is the third most dangerous country in all the world to follow Jesus. It is a country in which the state religion is Islam, it is a country where the religious leaders, the Islamic leaders, say publicly that there is no room for Christians whatsoever. Yet Christians are there, and they are still choosing to follow Jesus in a very dangerous situation. So as we pray for ourselves today, as we thank God for his word, let's take a moment to pray for our brothers and sisters in Somalia. Heavenly Father, we often forget that your family is much bigger than what it really is. We seem to often restrict it to just us. But we want to thank you this morning for our fellow brothers and sisters in Somalia. We want to thank you for keeping your promise. You said you were going to build the church and you are doing that. Even in the most dangerous places in the world, there are people willing to stand up and follow Jesus. So we want to pray for their boldness today. 
We want to pray that they remain bold, that they live lives being filled with the Spirit of Christ that's the only power that enables them to be brave and courageous. Father, we also want to pray for Shelly, for Gary, for the whole family, all who are concerned about Sherry right now. We lift her up to you. I ask, Lord, for your mercies. So this news has landed heavy upon them this week. We pray that your presence will be even greater right now. The heavy weight of your presence surrounding them. We pray for her well-being. In the days ahead, we just continue to lift her to you and asking, Lord, for your kindness and mercy toward her. Now, Lord, as we open your word, we want to receive it with a grand welcome, knocking on our heart's door, swing our heart's door open and, and receive today from you as we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in a brief series on the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness. We have not gotten to singleness yet. We will. But right now we're still looking at the gift of marriage and in particular today I'd like to speak to you on this thought. What does God want from my marriage? What does God want? Now there's what we want. There's what our friends and families may want for our marriage, for our lives. But I want to zero in on the question, what does God want from my marriage? And I want to emphasize it, what does God want? What does he want? Now ladies, you're you're not going to like what I'm about to say, but just, just ease up because um, it, it happened back in 1914. So, uh, Albert Einstein, he was a, theor- a theoretical physicist, and um, a trove of his letters were auctioned off back in 1996, letters that were written back in you know, around 1914, 1915. One of those letters that went on the auction block was to his wife. And in this letter, it contains marital expectations for her. In other words, what he wanted from the marriage. Here's what he said. The list includes daily laundry. For example, quote, it must be kept in good order. Next, quote, three meals regularly in my room. A desk maintained neatly, quote, for my use only. And the demand that she quit talking or leave the room if I request it. Now, you are not going to believe this. The marriage ended in divorce. (laughs) 1914, hopefully things have changed. It doesn't appear that Albert Einstein ever asked the question, what does God want from my marriage? It's what he wanted. But what does God want? Well... Better question for us today, have you ever really asked that question? As a Christian, as a man or woman of God, have you ever just stopped and said, God, what do you want from my marriage? You see, what if some of the challenges in your marriage could be attributed to, at least in a large part, I think, to the fact that you've never seriously considered asking that question? Now, I've been a pastor for 24 years, had the opportunity to meet with a number of couples over the years, and I have come to this conclusion. 
You know, people will say, well, I've got, we, we have troubles in our marriage. I think often the trouble is this. We are not asking the question and seeking the answer. God, what do you want for my marriage? We often look at God as a life coach to come along. And, you know, if, if we pray enough and if we do another, enough religious activity enough, we really hope that he'll come along with his energy and he'll energize our plans, what we want. But, folks, God wants more than that. And I tell you what, what he wants is absolutely stunningly beautiful. Unfortunately, we're not left in the dark as to what he wants. We have God's expressed imperatives for a Christian marriage right in front of us today. Now, I want to pave the way for how this can be helpful, okay? Uh, First, the portion of the letter that we're looking at is what's called the imperative mode. For example... It's a mode that begins back in chapter 4, verse 1. So you're going to see chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what it says. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, here's what's interesting to me, and I hope I, I want to make this interesting for you. When you read the letter of Ephesians, the first three chapters are in what is called the indicative mode. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are the imperative mode. You say, well, what's the difference? You'll see an explanation on the overhead. For example, uh, in the indicative mode, it's speaking about what has already been indicated or declared about you or who you are in Christ. In other words, if you sat down today and you started reading the letter of Ephesians, you'd begin at chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter the end of chapter 3 would be all in the indicative mode. It would be God saying to you, this is what I've done for you. This is the grace I've showed you. This is what I've done for you in my son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't ask us to do anything. He doesn't say, hey, get busy doing this or get busy doing that. Read your Bibles more. Do this more. No, it's just three beautiful chapters of here's what I have done for you. That's called the indicative mode. But then when you get to chapter 4, very strategically, the Holy Spirit shifts into the imperative mode. The imperative is it comes to us in the form of a command or direction. In other words, who you are becoming in Christ. In other words, now that God has been so gracious to us, uh, now that God has been so gracious to us, in light of the extraordinary measures that God has gone to to make us part of his family, here's what God wants now. Here's what he's commanding now. Now that you are a son or daughter of God, here's what I'm commanding you to do. That's the imperative mode. And notice... It said in verse 1 in chapter 4, it said, walk in a manner worthy. Walk. It's a metaphor. And it's a metaphor for a steady progress. In other words, God doesn't expect us to get it all down in one day. God doesn't expect us to get it all down in one week, one month, one year for that matter. Walk. Make steady progress. Keep pressing on to the conformity to our Lord's will. And that is what is laid out in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And we happen to be looking at chapter 5. And so this is the context for us today. And it sets the stage for us to hear what God wants for our marriage. So here's how we're going to break it down in three questions. What does God want for our marriage? Number two, how can we do it? Because it is enormous. It is like this vast Everest in front of us. And we've got nothing to climb it with in our own power. So what does God want for our marriage? Number two, how do we do it? And then briefly at the end, we'll talk about why 
God is commanding that we do it. So first, what? What does God want for our marriage? We know what Albert Einstein wanted for his marriage, but what does God want for our marriage as Christians? Well, I can think we can sum it up by doing three things. Put your finger on verse 22. Here's the first summation. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. And then finally, verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That is a good summation of what does God want for a Christian marriage. He wants wives to submit to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. And wives, respect your husbands. That's a good summation of it. But here's some things I want you to see. I want, I want, they're there. They're buried here in the text. But I want them to really stand out to you today. First, the example of Christ sets the tone for both the husband and the wife's interaction. In other words, we better be looking to Jesus. If we're going to do this, we better be looking at Jesus. How does he love the church? How does the church love him? That's what's being said in verses 24 and 25. Notice it says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. Now, that's what we've got to see right away. We've got to look at Christ. Can't look at our, you know, we can't look at our spouse all the time. Can't look, you're going to look at your spouse all the time, you're going to go, you're going to get really discouraged at times. You really are. You've got to look to Jesus as he did it, as the church responded to him. See that first. Second thing you need to see is this. God gives us no alternative design for marriage. God doesn't say this is A, this is quality, this is first class. But if you can't do that, you're not interested in it, you can do B or C or D doesn't do that. Nowhere are we given in the scriptures an alternative to design for what God wants for our marriage. Now, let me, let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to look at wives. It just comes in that context, in that order. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. So let me give just a little, you know, a little uh, warning here. Uh, when it gets into the subject of wives submitting to your husbands, submission, it gets real big, Okay. More, more time than we have to do this morning. So here's what I've thought. During the summer, I plan to do a, a series on hot topics. You know what hot topics are? Hot topics are the things that are really hot, but you don't talk about them a lot. One of those hot topics is submission and headship within marriage. And so we're going to look at it in more detail in later in the summer. But right now, I just want to kind of do a flyover of what God wants for our marriages for, for, for women and submitting to the husbands. Now, right off, right off, I would expect some kickback. And so let me explain what I mean by kickback. I read about a lady by the name of Lydia. When she was a child, she grew up in a home with a domineering bully of a dad. He dominated over the entire family. He was a bully. He was roughshod. He spoke, he always spoke unkindly to his wife, very unkind to the rest of the family. I thought this was interesting. Anything that went wrong in the home, it was not his fault. If something went wrong, it must be your fault. It must be the wife. It must be the kids. It's not my fault. And this man ruled with a certain expectation for others, but not for himself. In other words, you know, this is what you're supposed to do, and this is what you're supposed to do, but he didn't have the same standard for himself. So this is, this is how Lydia grew up. She grew up seeing this example between a husband and a wife. And when Lydia became a Christian later in life, she got engaged to a man named Tony, 
And they went to premarital counseling, and when she left, she was a bit puzzled because the pastor spoke to him about submission and headship. And, and though she could see it right there in the Bible, as you can see it, you can see it right there this morning, she could see it, but she had never seen this lived out for real. See, we, we see it, but have we ever seen it lived out in a real way? Because you see, if, if we misunderstand this subject of submission and headship, if we misunderstand it, it can lead to great hurt and pain, and it has in many circles, in many churches, quietly over the years, I've heard people talk about, especially wives talking, you know, their, their husband expecting them to submit and those sorts of things and, and, and going about it in such a domineering, ugly way. And so this can get really ugly if it's misunderstood. But if it's properly understood, it can lead to freedom and great joy. So... What God wants for our marriage first is that wives submit to their own husbands. All right. The wife's submission to her husband is of the same high quality as the spirit of every faithful Christian. What I mean by that is every Christian, if you're here this morning, you are called to submit in some way. There's some category in which you are to submit. And so for God to say to wives... Wives, submit to your husbands. It's to be the same high quality of the spirit that every Christian is to have. However, what's unique about a Christian wife is her calling to an attitude of readiness to yield to and support her husband's worthy leadership. Now, let me throw this in here because it might be percolating out there already. The wife's submission is not an enforced one. In other words, nowhere is the husband told in Scripture that he is to make sure that his wife submits. I've had the joy of being married almost 40 years. May 13th will be 40 years for Catherine and I. I have never, you know, the first few years we were not believers. We were just kind of going crazy our own way. But in the over the last 38 years of following Christ, it's been important to us to to do our best together to walk with Christ. And I have never, never once have I had to, have I had to say, you know, you really need to brush up on that submission thing, you know. You, you, you're, you're, you're kind of weak in that area, you know. I have never, I've never had the need to do it. I was always afraid to do it. Um, uh, but never, never, never saw the need to do it. Uh, because I, I think she's practiced that extremely well. Ne- neither one of us are perfect by any stretch, but she has, has done it so well. And, and so there, there's nowhere where a husband is to come along and say, look, the Bible says you've got to submit to me, so you better do it. That's no, no. The, the, the submission is voluntary as unto the Lord. I heard it put this way. Marriage is a waltz, not a military march. See the difference? That military march of just being so tied up and bound up like I'm just off walking on eggshells. No, no, no. The wife's submission is as the church lovingly submits to Christ. That's what it says in verse 24. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Wives, you have to think that through. You have to dwell on that. Think about How am I submitting to Christ? As as part of his church, how am I doing that? Am I doing it lovingly? Am Am I doing it willingly, voluntarily? Well, as you do that to Christ, as the church does that to Christ... Wives are to do that 
to their husbands. What does it look like? Well, this will give you a little bit of a picture. Uh, it's a readiness to adjust and adapt. It's, it's a willingness to fit in. It's a willingness to make the marriage work and find a win-win outcome. That's a little bit of what it looks like to submit. What, what, you know, bo- both of us working together for a win-win situation. The wife is coming along and saying, look, I'm, I'm ready to adjust for that purpose. Now, again, I, you, know, you talk about this subject, you can't help but just hear things. I can hear it right now. Someone saying, wait a minute, where does that leave me as a wife? Does that, does that mean that the husband is calling every shot possible and I'm just supposed to sit back and shut up? No. A natural right way for a wife will be at times to disagree with her husband. It will happen. And it's natural and it's right. As the wife submits, she will think for herself. My, my brothers, they, they will think for themselves. And they'll have good thoughts. They'll have smart thoughts. They will ask questions and they will express reservations. They will say, hey, is, do you really think this is best? And this is healthy and it is good. And the wife will help her husband see the problem from another angle. Uh, Again, having been here for 24 years, uh, all along the way, you don't know it. You don't know it, but the, if, if you like me at all, if you like me at all, you can thank my wife in big part because she has helped me so many times crawl back from the edge of the ledge, you know. I'd come, come home, you know, I'd be like a, just, ah, you know, and, and she would say, now, Van, think about this and think about this back up here and think about and I didn't want to I didn't want to because I wanted to do my thing but she come along I tell you folks you don't know how much she's helped you by helping me okay I'm being serious here really she's helped me to see the problem from another angle and if a husband is wise he will seek his wife's input he will say what do you think I want to know what you think because you have a vantage point that I may not have right now notice Though, and let's, let's kind of get this closed up here at this part. Verse, look at verse 22, ladies. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Big phrase there. What does that mean? A Christian wife's submission in the final analysis is really to the Lord. I mean, you want to, you want to cut through all the clutter and all the questions. And, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? If you want to just cut through it all, it comes down to this. A Christian wife's submission to her husband is ultimately, in the final analysis, a submission to the Lord. Her gracious disposition to receive and affirm her husband's headship is an act of worship to God. See that. That is vital. Doing this is worshiping God. It's saying, God, you're bigger than all my wishes and dreams. I want it your way. And so submitting in this way is worship to God. Now, what does God want for our marriages? Wives, submit to your husbands. There's a lot of healing that will going on, go on in marriages if we will embrace this. Number two, what does God want for our marriages? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, ladies, I think you'll find this interesting. You'll remember that this was written, when it, this letter was originally written, it was written in the Greek, Greek language. It took less words in the Greek to get things across oftentimes than in English. English often adds words because it's difficult to translate from English, uh, from, from Greek to English. And so here's what I found interesting this week. 
There are 40 words in the original language regarding submission. In other words, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, used 40 Greek words to speak to the issue of wives submitting to their husbands. But men, he used 115 words to husbands about sacrificial love. Hmm. Now that's interesting to me. That ought to cause us as men to, to, you know, really listen closely now. Much more, much more being said to husbands here regarding loving their wives than wives submitting to their husbands. Doesn't make it any less important, any greater importance. It's just I wanted to point that out. Look at verse 25 again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Oh, man, this is beautiful. This means that a Christian husband will serve his wife, one, as her lover, her provider, and her defender. How do we know that? Because that's the way Christ loved his church. Laid down his life. Lover, provider, defender. He loves his church. That, that's, the, that's the thing, man, we got to look at and go, how did, how did Jesus love his church? We got to explore that, man. We got to think about that. We got to tease that out and see what it means. But here's the problem we're going to have the word love. Because we're used to saying, I tell you what, I love golf. I love my wife. And the wife sits and goes, You, you love me? You love golf? Was there any distinction there? You know, is there any difference? Well, yeah, we, we mean there's a distinction, but we don't often put it in the best way. And so what is, you know, love is one of the most abused, misused words in our culture. And so that's why I think that the Holy Spirit gives us some provisional words to help us open a window. We're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. So it gives us some provisional words to open it up. Look at verse 29. Verse 29, for no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now, first off, men, we should recognize that these are words of wholehearted involvement. Wholeheart. We're all in, okay? But notice this. How, how does Christ love his church? Let's start with that. We're to love our wives as Christ loved his church. Christ First, Christ does not tyrannize or abuse his church, does he? Let's stop and think about that for a moment. Husbands, we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Does Christ tyrannize his church? No. Does he abuse his church? No. And so, men, that, that should be a signal that says, I should never tyrannize, I should never abuse my wife, whether it be physically, verbally, emotionally, in whatever way. Because if we're doing that, we're not practicing how Christ loved his church. Rather, instead of tyrannizing and abusing his church, what does he do? He nourishes it. Now, man, listen, Christ doesn't tear down his church. What does he do? He builds it up. That's what nourishing means. It means to develop or lift up. See, the husband, put it this way, the husband wants to make sure that his wife's life is moving in a desirable direction. That's it right there. Husband, Christian husband, you, you, you're like, I want to make sure. Christ wants to make sure his church is moving in a desirable direction, right? That's the way he loves his church. That's the way he nourishes it. And so, Christian husbands, we are to do our best to make sure that our wife's life is moving in a desirable direction. Wouldn't it be great? I just thought about this this week. 
especially with the, uh, the, the passing of Barbara Bush, and a marriage of 73 years, George Bush and Barbara Bush. And, um, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be, I mean, just think about a wife. I think about maybe, maybe a husband and a wife in the latter years are sitting on the porch rocking, you know, or taking a walk together, or, or maybe the husband has passed on. Wouldn't it be something for the wife to say, you know, as I think about my husband, I think about this, he cared about how my life was going. Guys, I tell you what, if, if I can't think of much greater than to, to, to think that a wife got it and she's like, look, there's one thing I can say about my husband. He cares about the direction of my life. He cares. And so that's to nourish. That's to nourish, okay? But then there's cherish. That's another window into loving. Cherish means to comfort, to warm, to soften. In other words, your wife is to be valued and held dear above all others, all others, all other relationships, work, church. You know, I've had, I've had, to, I've had to struggle with that over the years, I, of the, gaining more responsibility in life and this responsibility, this responsibility. It's so easy to go, well, I'm so busy and I'm so busy. I'm so responsible. Our wife is to be valued and held dear above all others. Her husband delights in her and prizes her. Brothers, that's what God wants for your marriage, okay? Now, I can hear, again, something else, cynicism. Preacher, you just don't know. You don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. And I don't. I don't know your particular circumstances. But I do know this. Every one of us gives the Lord plenty of reasons to give up and walk away on us. Do you believe that? Every, probably every day of our life, can you picture it? We give the Lord plenty of reasons to go, I cannot believe Ann. I cannot believe him. I mean, I thought he'd have it by now. He's messed up again. He doesn't seem to get this. He's not listening to me. I'm done. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. In fact... Our Lord's heart finds in our very offenses only more reasons to stay tenderly involved with us. Right in the midst of our failures, he finds reasons to say, I'm sticking with you. You need me. I'm not going to leave you. And so whatever cynicism you might want to bring and say, well, you know, you just don't understand. Again, look to Jesus. Tease out how, how Jesus is loving his church and church is loving him and submitting. And tease all these things out because that's the only way we're going to be able to, to really capture this and begin to move toward it. Which brings me to a second question. I'm going to hurry. How do we do this? If you, if you have been listening, you're starting to go, this is, you know, this is pretty big here. Um, loving my wife sometimes when she's unlovable. Uh, wives submitting to their husbands when, you know, you just, that's the last thing you want to do. And, and right today, you may be sitting here going, yep, yep, I'm on board, I'm on board, I'm going to practice this, I'm going to do this, and you're going to hit the brick wall somewhere. So how do we do this? We'll never do it in our own strength. Never. We do not have, on our best day, enough power and strength to pull this off. And that's why. That's why we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, just a few verses earlier, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be being filled with the Spirit.
This is the necessary power to walk worthy of our calling and particularly to face the challenges of marriage. Uh, It's interesting. Remember back in chapter 4, that's where the imperative began. Walk worthy of the calling you've been called in. And right in the middle of all this, Paul says, don't be drunk on wine. Don't be filled with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Not just be filled, but be being filled. Now, what does that mean? Because I think when you read the word filled, you start thinking of a cup. You go, well, there's a little bit here, and well, it's a quarter. Let's get it up to half at least. Well, maybe three quarters. The Holy Spirit doesn't come in pieces and parts. He is, he is a person, and he is one of the Trinity, one of the persons of the Trinity. It doesn't come in pieces and parts. But that's why we shouldn't look at it as you know, filled as pouring in a glass. We should look at it this way, under the influence of the Spirit. We are to be more and more under the influence of the Spirit. Um, I, I, I know of a, a songwriter in Nashville. His name is Rory Feek. And when he first started, he was always trying to get better. And hopefully, that whatever we're, we're engaged in, we're wanting to get better. And so Rory said, I wanted to get better, so I started hanging out with some of my heroes. Harlan Howard, Bill Gaither. Uh, he went on down the list, different ones that were, that were what he called heroes. And so they said, well, how did you do this? He said, I started hanging out with them. I just started hanging out with guys that were really doing this well. And here's the way he put it. He he used a sports analogy to explain. He said, if that's where the bar is, just hang around the bar and you'll find yourself trying to be the bar. And when I heard it in that interview, I thought, that's it. That's it. How do we we get better, you see? Well, Well, we remain under the influence of those who... Do it great, you see. We hang out the sports bar, raising the bar, you see. That's what he was talking about. So as Christians, how do we do this? We, we hang around the influence of the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you do that? Well, in John chapter 16, listen to what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, stop there for a moment. The Holy Spirit is going to be sent, Jesus said, going to send the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what he's going to do. And the Holy Spirit doesn't come and go, well, now that Jesus is out of the way, it's my turn. We get him out of the way. He's done his thing. It's my turn to shine. No. The Holy Spirit comes what? He will, ta- he, he will first glorify me. He will put the light on me. I'll be glorified. I'll be illuminated. You'll be able to see me better because of the Holy Spirit. And he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, this is where this gets really good. What he's saying is the Holy Spirit will unfold the primary task of the Holy Spirit is to unfold the meaning of Jesus' person and work to us believers in such a way that the beauty of it is brought home to our mind and heart. Something about what that means. See, we'll leave today and hopefully we'll leave refreshed. There'll be a, a better awareness of the beauty of Christ when we leave. But as we get back to our normal routine, that will kinda wane a bit, you see. And so what needs to happen? We need to be being filled with the Spirit. We need, to, we need to 
have the Spirit influencing our mind, our thought, our heart about the beauty of Christ. In other words, Christ should be the soundtrack of our lives. See, that's what the Holy Spirit does. I lived back in the 60s coming up, and the soundtrack of my life was Motown and the Beatles and all that kind of stuff. When I hear those songs, I go, yeah, I remember that. That, It brings everything back to me, you see. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He makes Christ the soundtrack of our lives. And we walk in step with the Holy Spirit's influence, listen, as we acquaint ourselves with Jesus. We, we, we read the scriptures, we, we study the scriptures, we, we tease out and go, Christ loved his church, how he, he nourished them. We look at that and the Holy Spirit illuminates and helps us to see and we go, yeah. And that gives us the strength and the power to do it. For example, if someone said, um, I, want, uh, I want you to do this job like Chris did it. I want you to do this job just like Chris did it. Now, what would be the best thing to do? The best thing to do would be become a student of Chris, right? You're being told you've got to do it like he does it. And so you'd go to Chris and say, tell me how you do this, you see. And because, because we are forgetful, we must be continually filled with the Spirit so that the Spirit will help us to see how Jesus did it. You see? That's how. Being continually filled under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And it's that way that we can do what God wants for our marriage. Finally, why? What kind of motivation could you have today to say, I'm all in. This is thrilling to me. I want to do this. And then you realize it's tough. It's hard. So why? Look at verse 30, and let's wrap this up. Especially, let's look at verse 29, how it flows into verse 30, because it's a complete sentence. It says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Do you see that phrase? He, lo- he loves his church, right? He loves his church. He cherishes it, nourishes it. Why? Because we are members of his body. Now, if you're here today and you, you know maybe you're not married, and you say, you know, I've been, been I've been wanting to hang in here, but I'm not married, this doesn't apply to me directly. Then I want you to take verse thirty with you today and just love it, and just like a lozenge, just let it stay in there this week. What it's saying is that you are very near and dear to Jesus because you are members of His body, and He doesn't abuse or tyrannize his body he loves his body and his body is the church and his church is near and dear to him but then why in verse 31 there is the verse or the word therefore do you see that word always pay attention when you see therefore because it means in light of what i've just said in light of what i've been talking about about christian marriage In light of that, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now listen very closely because I'm going to say something that's going to sound odd at first, but I think it's true and it will make sense. Verse 31 is telling us that the love of Jesus for his church is the reason why people get married. 
they, they may not know that when they're getting married. They may not know that. They may not even believe that. But what we're being told here, this profound mystery, what we're being told here is that the love of Jesus for his church is the reason why people get married. Think about it. Every time a bride and groom take their vows, they are re reenacting the biblical love story. Every time, whether they know it or not, whether they believe it or not, whether they embrace it or not, every time they are reenacting the biblical love story. What is it? This reflects the Son of God stepping down out of eternity, taking on human flesh. What? To do what? To pursue and win his bride, the church. Isn't that the gospel story? Stepping down out of heaven, putting on human flesh to go about to pursue and win people like you and me. His bride. Marriage language. His bride. And as a Christian married couple, we have the calling to make this mystery of the gospel visible. I want to read you one final thing and we're going to close. But we're asking the question, why? Why, why should you and I go from here today and embrace this and lean into the Spirit's help, be being filled with the Spirit for this task? Why? Why? Christopher Ashe puts it so well. He gives an analogy first. Some years ago, I read of a dispute in Britain between the Foreign Office and the Treasury. The argument was about which British ambassadors would be provided with a Rolls Royce for their official duties in a foreign capital. The Treasury, unsurprisingly, wanted these wonderful cars restricted to just a few, one for the city of Washington, D.C., one for Moscow, and one for Paris. But the Foreign Office argued for many more, and he said, I love their reasoning. Here was their reasoning. Most people in a foreign capital have never been to Britain, but when they see this magnificent Rolls Royce gliding through their streets with the United Kingdom flag on the hood, they say to themselves, I've not been to Britain. I don't know much about Britain. But if they make cars like that there, then Britain must be a wonderful place. Then he says this, In a similar way, I like to think that men and women may say to themselves as they watch a Christian marriage, I have never seen God. Sometimes I wonder when I look at the world if God is good or if there is a God. But if he can make a man and a woman love one another like this, if he can make this husband show costly faithfulness through sickness as well as health, if he can give him resources to love when frankly there is nothing in it for him, well, then he must be a good God. And if he can... Give this wife grace to submit beautifully with such an attractive, gentle spirit under terrible trials. Then again, he must be a good God. Why? See, why, why do we pursue this? To the glory of God. Many people are going, who, who don't believe in God and are skeptical and they have all kinds of questions. If we can, under the power and the strength of the Spirit, to go after what God wants for our marriage, it will be one way that we will glorify him. And perhaps people will say, you know, sometimes I wonder if there is a God. But if God can make a husband and a wife love and submit like that, then one thing for sure, if 
there is a God. He's a good God. 